One of the questions I'm often asked is where do you find your guests? I'd love to say they all find me, but the reality is, even though I get pitched a lot, most of the people on Chatter That Matters are here because I went after them. The intent of my show is to counter the storm of negativity, this growing sense of impossibility, by showing ordinary people who find a way to do extraordinary things, despite often challenging circumstances. Of course, some are household names, Olympians and artists, leaders in the non-for-profit and for-profit, people that are trying to better our planet, elevate society. Others you've never heard of, but their stories are still inspiring. And we leave no stone in turn. Reconciliation, gender equality, diversity, accessibility, immigration, the future of work, the future of our youth. In this world of relentless headwinds, if you're someone who makes things happen with positivity and possibility, I just might be reaching out to you because your ideas, insights, and approach to life generally matter. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is British. His name is James Mullinger, and if you haven't heard of him, you soon will. Many consider him a comedic genius. He's been seen on stage on the silver screen with some of the world's best. In Britain, he had a high-paying job during the day, and he sought the stage to hone his craft at night. His Canadian wife was equally successful, and their future looked bright. Together, they made a life-changing decision. They gave up all they had, great job security, and James with a growing reputation as a comic. They put that all aside to move to Atlantic Canada so their kids could be raised close to their wife's family. I now live in a place where I can wait half an hour for the Gondola Point ferry boat. Get onto the Gondola Point ferry boat, get halfway across the water, some moron arrives 20 minutes late, we will go back to get that person. And best of all, and most importantly, every single person on that boat is thinking, yes, this is absolutely the right thing to do. It came without prospects, and as the pandemic hit, the stage lights were turned off for anyone who made their living performing for an audience. And what they did and continue to do as a family, as a career, as a positive contribution to the community in Canada is remarkable. James Mullinger, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. It's genuinely an honour to be here. Let's set the stage for my audience. You grew up in Maidenhead, Berkshire. So what's life like for someone growing up in sort of the English countryside? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's essentially a small town in the in the suburbs of London, you know, about about 40 minute train ride from London. And I mean, really just your, your bog standard small town, except kind of unlike a small town in Canada, there wasn't really a sense of community. I mean, for, for me coming to a country like Canada, where in small towns, everyone knows everyone. Well, I mean, everyone knows everyone in the in the big towns and the big cities as well here. I mean, it's one of the things that I think I love so much about this country that for the for the second biggest country in the world, it can often feel like uh, a small town in terms of the way that people look out for you and people's kindness. And indeed, the, the fact that you can travel to the other side of the country and bump into someone who knows your next door neighbor or your, your wife's cousin. Growing up in Maidenhead was essentially just um, 
a fairly nothing upbringing. You know, I didn't really, we didn't really know our neighbours, have a sense of community. There wasn't things for kids to do. You know, struggled in school. I wasn't academic. I wasn't athletic, and I didn't really have any friends. I was what my mum recently jokingly described as a as a triple bill of failure for them. <laughs> you know, because normally if your child isn't athletic, maybe maybe they're academic. But in my case, I had none of it going on. So I just spent my childhood in my bedroom making up stories, watching comedy videos, and uh, and dreaming. Of of, of what might be one day. Did you ever imagine yourself back then selling out stadiums the way you do? Or was it more, this is the only way I can create an identity is somehow finding, maybe making my parents smile or my friends laugh? I think you're right. I think the thing that a lot of people believe is that the comedian is the class clown or it's the funny person in the pub. But but to your point, uh, the reverse is normally the case. I mean, in actual fact, the class clowns and the guy that's funny in the pub or the girl that's funny in the pub is often does not make the best comedian because the comedian is generally the person that is sitting back observing often the introvert and and for me as a teenager I was scared to speak to other kids in my class my my mum for example cannot believe that that this is the job that I do now she's like how how is it that the child I couldn't get to approach the the neighbor's kids and ask them to play ball uh, because he was too scared to leave his bedroom uh, how is he now standing up in front of hundreds of thousands of people a night and I mean I think when I first became obsessed with comedy, it was it was really seeing my parents lose control when when laughing. Like those are, those are some of my earliest memories. Is, is sitting in our living room, and my parents not that they were kind of overly strict, but they were fairly controlled people. And the only time I ever see them lose control was was when we were watching like a John Candy movie, and I would see them in hysterical fits of laughter. And I thought, wow, who is this? Who is this amazing godlike genius that has this power to to make my reduce my parents to kind of fits of laughter? And at that point, kind of became not only obsessed with the art of, of comedy, but then when I started to read the autobiographies of stand-up comedians, I was like, wow, these, these people seem to have the same insecurities and anxieties as I do. And they seem to be oddballs like me, but they also conversely do this bizarre job where they walk out on stage in front of thousands of people. And I think at that point, I became fascinated with the process and the craft, even though I never thought I would end up doing it myself. So you, you mentioned the sense of this, the curiosity, the power of observation. I always loved Jerry Seinfeld because even though he claimed the show was about nothing, it was just absolutely nailing humanity. And you just realize that how he saw the world was almost like he was an alien looking down and seeing this crazy human species. Is that kind of how your pattern when you everywhere you walk, you're seeing where we might just be seeing a couple having a cup of coffee, you're seeing something different? I think so. I mean, you're constantly looking for what is funny and what is different. And certainly when you're building a new show, I mean, I'm always kind of open-minded when it comes to looking for jokes, but especially when I am at the start of a year or the end of a tour writing uh, a new show, every single thing, you know, and again, it's very frustrating for obviously those around you that you're sitting in a restaurant and you're not really listening because you're kind of looking at napkins and thinking, napkins, is there something funny about napkins? And and, and you're just constantly trying to kind of uh, find that link. And I think that's partly why in the UK, you know, even though stand-up was going fine, I was still just, I had no angle, I had no no hook. The dream really for a comedian is to be a fish out of water. You 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 know, our job is to notice things and, and when better to notice things when you're in a, a situation that isn't one that you're necessarily that comfortable in. So, James, before we come to Canada, you're working at GQ. You start off as a photo editor. Then you become their comedy editor. I didn't even know that existed at GQ. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing at GQ Britain, because it sounded like a dream job because it wasn't just print. 
you were doing a lot of film as well. Yeah, I mean, I went into GQ after leaving university for a one-week internship, and that internship turned into a 14-year career. And I think when I went in there, I knew this was a, a dream job. I knew it was an opportunity. I definitely went in there with the attitude of, I need to make myself I- I- indispensable. I think I did what I thought I was supposed to do. As someone that was obsessed with journalism and obsessed with the kind of concept of magazine creation growing up, um, I mean, a good example is in my first week, uh, I was asked to research teeth whitening products. And I now realized that I think what the journalist meant was they meant Google teeth whitening products and print out some pages. Whereas I left the office and went down to Harley Street and interviewed about a dozen uh, dentists and then transcribed all of the all of the audio. So, I mean, it was definitely something that I, that I wanted to do eventually found the courage to pursue stand-up comedy, which had been a, a dream since I was extremely young and never thought I'd have the confidence to do. And it was a, a chance encounter actually in Canada that made me made me want to do that or made me realise that I had the strength to do it. And really, we all, I mean, I, to be quite honest, all of my dreams came true there. I got to work with my heroes like like Jerry Seinfeld, but I wasn't doing the thing that I, that I love. And also, crucially, as became the case when we made the decision to move here, uh, on paper, our lives were were great. You know, my, my wife was the publishing director for, for Monocle magazine. Uh, and for my part, you know, I was performing stand-up most nights, uh, meeting my heroes during the day. But we had one child. We had our second child on the way. We didn't see each other. We didn't have any quality of life. We worked around the clock. And we just realized suddenly that nothing was going to change. If we didn't make a drastic change, in 10 years' time, we would still be in the same position, same house, in the most expensive city in the world, basically working for free to pay a stranger to look after the two little uh, people that I want to be with most in the world. Now, I didn't know at this point what a friendly place St. John is, because it's very friendly, isn't it? Like, London is not friendly at all. I don't know if you know what it's like to live in London, but it's not a friendly place. It's a very aggressive place. If you go out to a pub in London, you always have to avoid eye contact or you might get in a fight. Like, you'll be walking through a pub and someone will just make eye contact. Are you looking at my bird? Did you spill my pint? Do you want to fight? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And I think it was the first time in my entire life I've ever made a decision based not on ego or career or, or you know, personal advancement and simply what is the best thing for our family. And, and that decision was to move to New Brunswick and be closer to my wife's family. My special guest, James Mullinger. It must have been a tough decision. You've got the full-time job at GQ. Every night you're starting to really find that hook. You know, you're getting involved in reality TV shows. You're hitting it out of the park. It must have been one of the toughest decisions you've ever faced because you're leaving. That snowball suddenly gets unpacked. And what you're really packing up is just the children's clothes with no hope. Big, great title for a book. Uh, Children's clothes with no hope. And uh, when I look back, I mean, they say the most stressful things in life for changing jobs or having a baby or moving house. We were doing all three at the same time, plus moving countries. We were both, as, as you point out, I mean, in, in very um, safe jobs, uh, well-paid jobs. I mean, my entire family was there. Everything essentially we'd built up was there. And we were giving it all up to come to a place which, again, now looking back, it's, it's very weird to think that we really didn't have a plan. You know, I, everyone told me that not only would I not be able to continue being a, a comedian here, that they said that there was no entertainment industry at, at all here. And I mean, I guess part of us believed that if you're good at what you do or you're willing to work hard, you can do what you do anywhere. And I, I do absolutely stand by that and I, I believe in it. And I now, with the benefit of hindsight, I can say it's actually slightly ridiculous that people would say to me, don't go to New Brunswick, there's no comedian. 
comedians there because that would be a bit like saying to a plumber don't go to this city there's no plumbers there if there's no plumbers there there's a lot of toilets that need unblocking um, that's how I see myself as the toilet unblocker of comedy I gotta take that we'll make sure we put that in the show <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've kind of uh, I, I guess what I've learned is is that you almost have a, a better chance at things if you are carving your own path. If I'd have moved to a big city like New York or Toronto to apply my trade, I would essentially have had to follow the path. The, 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 people have very rigid ideas of, well, you need to play this festival, you need to play this club, you need to do this TV show. The, one of the wonderful things about a, a place like New Brunswick, and indeed anywhere small, is that it's all about word of mouth. It's very organic. It's very real. There's no tricks you can pull. If you do good work, people will hear about it. And conversely, if you don't, they will hear about it. So I just arrived here and started doing gigs um, anywhere from a school, a vineyard, a church. And it started off paying to 20 people within a few months, increased to 800. And then by in two years, I mean, I was playing a, a, a large sized arena here here in St. John. Well, you're, I think your arena, you actually beat Jerry Seinfeld's numbers. So, you know. Well, yeah, well, you, just, just once, just once. Like, well, twice. I, I, love your, I love your humility and I just want the audience to realize that your energy when you talk about, you know, standing on that new tightrope, trying to find your own path in life. What advice can you give to others? Because there's a lot of people in the world that envy the courage it takes to make that change. So what did you learn about yourself and your family that you think could also apply to the audience? I mean, some would say it was even stupidity. I mean, it really, it, you know, there is a, an element of foolishness to giving up all of that without a plan in place. But I truly believe that, that everything that's happened to me since is thanks to the fact that we made this decision. And I think that possibly what I was doing wrong before was every decision I was making was based on ego or career. And then suddenly by making a decision for the right reasons, everything fell into place. I mean, I mean, it, 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 I didn't make this move because of something Seinfeld said, but about eight months before we moved, I, my, my dream came true and I got to interview Seinfeld in person. I had a list of questions I had to ask him and it was all being recorded and filmed to play on the iPad. But I had a question that I wanted to ask him myself, just for me. Why did you quit the TV show Seinfeld, your sitcom, when you did? And he looked me in the eye and he said, that's simple, James. He said, because that's what everybody expected me to do. And then he left a, a kind of a dramatic pause as this kind of as this kind of seeped in. And then he said, there's a good life lesson. He said, make a list of all the things that everyone expects you to do and do the opposite. So uh, less than a year later, we were on a plane to St. John, New Brunswick. <laughs> and, and, and I think even though I wouldn't necessarily say don't always do the opposite of what everyone expects you to do in life. I think there are some people in creative fields or in any, any industry where they get big breaks or they get signed to an agent and this agent picks up the phone and makes these things happen. One thing you learn when you are, and certainly this was the case for me in London and certainly coming to New Brunswick to, to apply my trade here, no one has ever given me permission. No one's ever made it happen. And I get asked this, a lot of people say, how did you get booked for this? How did you do that? And I said, well, because I send you know, 100 emails a day and one or two come to something. Um, and, and, and the grind never stops. You know, I think it's such a great insight in terms of sense, like I make it happen. And I think that that really does separate a lot of entrepreneurs because they realize that they're going to go in. They have an idea. They have a dream. Everybody talks about manifestation, but it's a 10,000 little things that add up to it. I want to get to your magazine in a minute because that to me is yet another curveball that's coming into your story. But talk to me about 
how it all happened in Canada. I know you when you landed, you got a gig immediately in Edmonton, but how did that snowball start rolling? As you said, from uh, where everybody said, you know, there's no hope for a comic in New Brunswick. You've become one of the most successful comics in the country, not just in terms of the stage, but also your own film projects, your television movies. So just give, give us a highlight reel of how this all came about. I think it really was just arriving and saying to myself, um, I need to get out there and do it. And I, and, and again, now looking back, I mean, that, that strategy of word of mouth, I don't think I was necessarily aware of, of it. It just came natural. Like I've done a lot of fringe festivals in my, in my life where, you know, you arrive in a city, like, I mean, I've done the Montreal fringe, you arrive, you've got 15 shows and your job is to go out and fly out all day long. And every bar you go and you chat to someone, you try and get them to come to your show. I realized that I kind of needed to make my entire life uh, a fringe and so would do that my wife would say go to the, take the kids to the park and I would stuff flyers in my pockets and made sure I talked loudly at the park so people would go oh that's an interesting accent where are you from ah oh, I'm a comedian come to my show tonight I don't think though I expected it to happen quite quite so quickly there was there was an article in the local newspaper about the fact we had moved here slash moved home uh, for, in my wife's case and the owner of a vineyard on the Kingston Peninsula, which is a, a peninsula near to St. John, and a vineyard owner phoned my mother-in-law's house because he's found her number in the phone book. Again, it's classic small town. Thing. Reads the article, figures out who she is, phones the phone book, um, the print phone book. This wasn't online. Uh, phones the house. This is in 2014. And basically invites me to do a, a gig in the vineyard. Now, British-minded me or you know London me would have thought that can't work outdoors in a vineyard anything outside of my comfort zone, anything outside of a club or a theatre can't work. But I thought I've got no other option, so I'm going to do this. Um, and so to cut long story short, I did one show, this was maybe May or June, uh, so a few months after we'd moved here, and there were 20 or 30 people here. It went well, they enjoyed it, they told people. We did another one, it was to, to 60 or 80. And over the summer, every other week, we would do a show in this vineyard outside, and the numbers just grew, and it was bring your own lawn chair, and by the end of the summer, we had a kind of upwards of 300 people coming to these shows. I said to a local entrepreneur here um, named Jules Mackin, I said, I'm thinking of booking this big Imperial Theatre, which is an 850-seater theatre in, in, in the city. I'm going to book it next year. And she said, don't wait, do it now. And that's a bigger room than I was playing in. When I toured solo in the UK, you know, I might play to a few hundred people, but that that was it. I had a small but loyal following, which was the dream. That was That's, that's the benchmark of success as far as I was concerned. And basically through the word of mouth of those vineyard shows, filled that theatre that that October. And and really since then, I think it's been a very, very, it's just been that replicated over and over. And of course it, it's grown, but it is all simply word of mouth. And people will say to me, you know, what's your, uh, what's the marketing trick? What's this and the other? And really it's like, well, there is no, there is no trick. Just work extremely hard at the thing and, and, and give people the thing that, that they want. And I mean, not that I didn't always work hard at comedy, but it does make a difference when you live in a place where it's so organic here and so grassroots that you know, if a plumber, to go back to the plumbing analogy, floods one house, everyone's hearing about it. Whereas you can be the worst plumber in the world in London. And even if everyone whose house you floods tells everyone they know, still 0.0001% of the population will hear about it. Um, similarly for a comedian, you can be a bad comedian in the UK. I mean, yes, you're not going to be successful, but you can get away with it for a long time. In, in the Maritimes, you cannot get away with... People talk and they talk a lot and word spreads quickly. Uh, so that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how hard you're working. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. When we come back, 
I chat with James Mullinger about his wife and his latest venture, creating a magazine. Chatter that matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live, and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. I do love living here. Everything I say about how much I love it here is true. I'm always so honoured to, to find out little facts about St. John because I'm always telling people about it and telling people how wonderful it is here. Like, I don't know if you know this, did you know that the, that the first paved street in all of Canada was in St. John? Prince William Street was the first paved street in all of St. John. Of course, it hasn't been paved since. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest today is a comedic genius, and an entrepreneur extraordinaire. His name is James Mullinger. How important is it that you're aligned with your partner when you're making these life decisions and you know, you're willing to say, you know what, this gig in the vineyard might only just be 20 people, but she's saying, yeah, but maybe next time it's 60. And she's always been incredibly supportive because it, it, it is a strange thing when you reveal to your partner that you're even gonna take up uh, what begins obviously as a hobby. You know, in, in, in the year 2004, 2005, I, I essentially was saying to her, hey, you don't you know how we don't see much of each other now? Well, uh, hey, I, I'm going to I'm going to take up stand up comedy. So I'm going to be out about five nights a week. And she says, oh, well, you know, that's a shame. But at least we'll have a bit more money. Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to have a lot less money because I'm not going to be paid for about 10 years. And for those 10 years, I'm going to be traveling around the country, spending 100, 200 pounds a night on trains and hotels to 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 get booed off stage every night. And so we, when you see me, we're gonna have even less money and I'll constantly be depressed because I've just been booed off stage the night before and slept on a train platform having missed the last train home. It's a strange thing for, for, for someone to go, great news, go for it. She's always been incredibly uh, supportive of it. And um, I think both of us have had our doubts over the years, but she's never once told me, told me to quit. I've told myself uh, a thousand times to quit. Quite incredibly, which I guess is the strength of every relationship. I think she just had a, a, a belief in me. So having that belief in each other is, is is crucial, of course, for, I mean, any entrepreneur, but also any relationship. So tell me a little bit about thousands of times I said to myself I was going to quit. What kept you from quitting? I think what keeps you going is obviously a huge love and passion for the craft and of course i mean in the case of stand-up it is the buzz of when it goes well in 2019 i remember having a run of particularly bad corporate gigs and it was three or four in a row where it wasn't going well i was thinking i've lost it uh, i can't do this anymore and i was seriously considering like focusing on other projects and not pursuing stand-up anymore. And then suddenly was booked to do a, a corporate gig for a thousand nurses at a huge Richard Curry Center at UMB in Fredericton. And I arrived and again, I'm sound checking. I'm looking out at these, uh, you know, the thousand seats and thinking this is going to be terrible. I'm going to, these nurse, nurses are absolute heroes and I'm going to ruin their night. How dare I even be here uh, having the audacity to, and, um, and, and, and of course, you know, you arrive for a sound check at th- two, three in the afternoon and then it's five hours till showtime. That's five hours of sitting 
sitting around self-loathing rewriting material and yeah yeah rewriting or questioning or looking at a piece of paper saying this is all garbage at that point I had decided that I wasn't going to pursue or actively book any more gigs and then when I was stage it was just one of the most electric gigs of my life and then at the end of the show after an hour on stage you know a thousand nurses jump to their feet and applause and you go oh okay this is the best job in the world I'm, I'm the king again and, and and it's constantly this kind of um up and down trajectory so I mean I think the thing that keeps you going is is the good gigs the thing that kept me going through the really bad moments like sleeping on a, tra- a station platform was the thought to myself well every single comedian or successful comedian or successful performer who I've seen being interviewed or read read an autobiography of they describe all of these terrible instances that they went through so I always thought the more terrible things that happened to me possibly is the is a sign that I might make it and the problem with this though is that everywhere I go like I go back to England and I do tours and people are interviewing me and they're like so you know we all thought that your career was going to be over when you got to New Brunswick and it seems to be going well uh, you know what's it like now I'm like it's amazing for the for the one bedroom apartment that I, I, I had in London I was trying to bring up you know two children in this one bedroom apartment I was able to come to New Brunswick and buy a house on the water and it cost 79 cents right <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about this magazine so it's not enough that you go into a world which is has complete uh, uncertainty you decide to start a magazine where give us the rationale why you just needed another injection of uh, what the hell was i thinking or what kind of lunatic uh, <laughs> leaves london to per- pursue their stand-up career in St. John, New Brunswick. And then What Kind of Lunatic starts a, a print magazine in 2017 and makes it solely about Atlantic Canada and distributes it nationally. Um, but there's a random for every reason. And, and I have to say that Edit Magazine was born out of, it was a creative decision in that we moved to this place. We fell in love with it. We couldn't understand why people outside of Atlantic Canada had a certain perception of it being, well, we knew why, why everyone thought it was lobsters and lighthouses, because that's tend to be how it was conveyed from within the region and then we also can understand why people within the region didn't have more pride for where they lived and where they were from and we also were um, um, very impressed by the amount of things that were going on and because we've traditionally we know how to dig things out and find out what's happening um, lots of people didn't so I would often post online that we'd been to this event or that event and people would go how did you hear about this and and so we, we thought well there needs to be a physical tangible thing that people can hold and A be proud of within the region uh, B it can tell them what's going on hence the name edit we will we will find out everything that's happening and we will do the edit for you and present it to you um, and then also uh, thirdly to have a something to convey to people outside of the region this is what it's really like here on the business side we realized that there was so many, obviously so many people living here that aren't being reached by traditional means. So from a business perspective, all the brands that that want to reach a certain demographic need an outlet to do so. It was tough. I mean, we, we, we still to this day produce it out of our home. Uh, we launched it without any you know government support, without any uh, funders, investments, backers. We went out and, and, and secured advertising by, by knocking on doors. And that meant obviously, you know, huge expenses of traveling across Canada, uh, uh, traveling to Toronto to meet with ad agencies, big companies, small companies. And um, and we just celebrated our, our fifth anniversary. And it, and it was a print magazine for, for the first three years. And then thanks to the pandemic and, and 
me being chucked at home. We suddenly uh, decided to branch it out into a bi-weekly digital as well as the print, a TV show and a podcast. So it, it's essentially become uh, a media brand devoted to uh, celebrating this place and, and really telling the stories that that, that that weren't being told before or we, or we felt weren't being told before. You're a true demonstration of this buzzword omni-channel. And I want to talk a little bit about television, movies, your podcast. You just wrote a book, Brit Happens, which is so clever. Are you realizing now that this content's like liquid and can travel anywhere as opposed to being maybe where a lot of stand-up comedians is kind of stand-up even if they do a TV show or they do Saturday Night Live, it's still stand-up. You seem to be going in a variety of different directions. So what brought all of that about? Almost certainly the freedom of being in a place where you don't get pigeonholed. I have obviously, you know, agents and, and bookers for, for corporate gigs, but I don't have agents in the traditional sense of advisors. So I literally have to navigate everything myself and every decision is, is essentially, you know, it, it, it's my wife and I, and that means obviously certain learning curves. And there are certain things that, I, that I've had to teach myself. I mean, I mean, one example being, you know, how do you stay, for want of a better phrase, relevant or in demand living in a small place where unlike in bigger cities where maybe you need the average uh, audience member to come and see you every three years, here you need them to come twice a year. So how do you make that happen? How do you, you know, and of course the answer is, you know, turning over so much new material all the time. And equally, I mean, knowing what not to do. And I think one of the hugest things is, I probably spend more time thinking about, I probably decline about 80 or 90% of things that come in because it's very easy for people, especially in a small place, it's easy for people to get sick of you. And one of the toughest things is going, okay, you don't want to be so ubiquitous that people go, oh, it's this guy again. Because as soon as people are sick of your face, sick of your name, uh, it's over. And so a, quite a quick, even though I do all these different things, the one thing that I avoid ever doing is doing anything that isn't, the thing that I do. I need to be doing stand-up. You know, I was watching some of your early videos to your new ones. As the audiences grew, I got a real Joe Cocker vibe from you. You're just like this energy, you're moving, you're in the stage, you're transformative in the sense. And is that part of your hook? Is that just you? That you're when you're out there, you're unbridled and, and there's just there's no stopping it. That's a lo- lovely thing to say. Thank you, Tony. And that means a lot coming from you, mate. It really does. It's um when the feeling is right, that that's how it should be. And and I guess I definitely feel a lot freer on stage. And 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 the greatest feeling in the world is when, you know, it's a cliche when people talk about the collaboration between the, the, the performer and the audience, but it really is that in the when the audience is giving a lot and, 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 and the laughs are huge and the reactions are big, it gives you the freedom and the comfort to go off on, on tangents. And those to me are just the greatest moments. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is James Mullinger. You know, RBC is the sponsor of my podcast, and they are massive fans of yours. I was talking to a couple of people in the Atlantic region, and they said, oh, we can't get enough of you. So your corporate gigs, but a lot of them are virtual. The pandemic, the lights go dark. Again, you have to reinvent yourself because this person that just prowls the stage and has this unbelievable energy, you're now kind of trapped in front like we are today in front of a screen. How do you find a way to engage an audience not knowing who the audience is and whether they're having coffee, doing Wordle or actually listening to you? 
you know, again, I'm, as you can tell, I'm someone that always try, tries to look at the positive. And, you know, the virtual gig thing obviously began as a compromise. It began as a replacement for in-person because we couldn't do, uh, couldn't do that. But it's actually continued as, as, a, as an option for things. And, and to, to use the example you mentioned, I mean, like, uh, two weeks ago, I did one for all of RBC Atlantic Canada, which again, it was never going to be an in-person event. It was Staff Appreciation Week. And so they got every, you know, like 1,500 employees to come into work an hour early. Here's coffee and here's a live stand-up performance. One of the things I learned quickly was that provided I can have the audience uh, muted, but with their videos on, then I can engage with them, see them laughing. So the, and so the positive thing that I tried to tell myself was that in a theater, I can always hear the audience laughing, which is obviously vital and beautiful and wonderful, but I can't see them because the spotlights are too bright. So suddenly, thanks to the pandemic, I got to see close up people sitting in their offices or homes or hot tubs or wherever they were um, laughing and, and seeing them wipe away tears. And, and so I really just basically had to replace my love of the sound of laughter with just little boxes, grids of people laughing. And a lot of comedians refused to do virtual gigs. A lot of them said it sounds like a nightmare. And I kept saying, yes, but so did stand up before we did it. Uh, it's just a case of, of learning it, ironing out the kinks and, uh, and making it work. So talk to me a little bit about the new book, Brit Happens. Great picture on the cover. Why should they order this book? It, it is a memoir, but obviously what I realized quite early on that it was that I wanted to focus on my journey to Atlantic Canada and, and Canada as a whole. I mean, the book is essentially a love letter to Atlantic Canada. The, the sub the subtitle is uh, Living the Canadian Dream. And really it's it's a celebration of this country as, you know, the second biggest country in the world, but oddly the most welcoming. And I mean, for me, my first year living here, I, I seeing in 2014, the fact that back in, the, in England, the way that politicians were getting votes is by saying that they were not going to let any Syrian refugees into the country. And then conversely here in Canada, the way politicians are getting votes is by welcoming uh, Syrian refugees at the airport with hugs and kisses. I just thought that Canada is, is, is the country to be, this is the place to be. And so the whole book is really a love letter to it. It also functions as a travelogue. The reason that I, I mean, haven't glossed over my early years, but the reason why there's only a few chapters devoted to my childhood was that I wanted to focus on the things that essentially I believe led me to fall in love with this place, this country. So I wanted to focus on the grind when you're at the bottom of the pecking order, uh, what it takes to kind of keep working. I don't think people would expect a comedian's memoir to necessarily be full of chapters on bullying, domestic violence, um, suicide, um, all of the things that have affected me uh, throughout my life. Uh, there was a temptation very briefly to maybe tone some of that down. And I thought, no, you know what, if, if, this is, if, if I get one hit at, at writing a book, I want it to be honest and true. Yes, there are chapters that I believe are funny, but really like my love of this place is born out of the fact that I grew up with an absolute loathing of of bullies in of any type of any capacity whether that be you know domestic abusers or or racist or whatever it was so my love for this country and its welcoming nature towards immigrants uh, it is it, essentially building up to that and then uh, tales of of essentially many many chapters about uh, dying on stage every night <laughs> <laughs> 
I always end my show with the three things I'm going to take away. And I'm actually going to cheat because there's so many I can take away. But the sense of uh, make your life like a French festival, you know, it's putting out those 10,000 flyers. Don't be afraid to go out and promote who you are, why you matter, what makes a difference. I love the idea of this sense of staying relevant, this scarcity. Do what you do best and don't just kind of stretch yourself in other places. But I want to end by telling you that you're an amazing human being. I hope one day that next tightrope you're on, politics, because I think you could offer people so much because there's a lot of people that were judged, bullied, uh, attacked, afraid, introverted, uh, scared. You're a proof that despite circumstances, uh, there's so much you can do. And I think that message is something that's so desperately needed out there. So for all of that and more, I, I am just so honored you're part of Chat of the Matters. Oh, Tony, well, I can't thank you enough for having me. It's, I mean, it's a massive honor. You know what a fan I am of the podcast and just listening to you speak to, you know, a mutual friend, Tarek Kadad and Amber Mack. And I mean, all, every single one, what you do, you inspire people, you know, daily with what you do, my friend. And uh, and, and these podcasts do make a huge difference to people's lives. And uh, to, to be a guest on one just means the absolute world to me. And I, I actually, I, I couldn't believe it when... Uh, when Janet introduced us, and I'm just so uh, so grateful to you, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been James Rollinger. Thank you all very, very much indeed for coming out tonight. You have been a true delight. Uh, you've made my dreams come true one more time. Joining me now is Greg Sloan. He's the Regional Vice President of Western New Brunswick. Greg, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Before we get into what you're doing at RBC and why you're such a fan of James Mullinger, I understand that in your background, you were a small business owner. That's right, actually. Uh, when I was in Calgary um, quite a few years ago, we actually owned a coffee shop and a retail store. My wife and I and, and two other people owned it together while working full-time at the Royal Bank still. How does that help you in terms of when you're working with clients? And I know your campaign is Ideas Happen at RBC, and the idea is that clients bring in ideas, and then you bring in ideas. Do you think having that background as a small business owner makes you even better in terms of empathy, understanding needs, coming up with solutions? It really does. I mean, I started out my career on the personal side, and of course, we're all personal clients, and so we have bank accounts and credit cards and you know, we, we have all those needs of a person. I want to buy a mortgage or sorry, I want to buy a house. I want to, uh, you know, save for retirement. But from a business perspective, when I became a commercial account manager, I didn't have that experience yet. And so, you know, while I could relate on a certain level to my clients, I hadn't necessarily gone through what they went through. But once I actually started doing that, and then my clients are talking to me about, you know, my retail clients are talking about how they don't have staff show up in the morning. Well, I could relate because I had staff that, you know, didn't show up and, and the store didn't open on time. And that went a long ways to um, creating that connection with the clients, but just enabled me to be more understanding. So let's talk about James Mullinger. I mean, his wife and him are rocketing in London, England. He's building his growing reputation as a comic. Things seem to be just fantastic. And they make a life-changing decision they moved to St. John, New Brunswick, so that their children could be close to his wife's parents. How do you relate to someone that walks into the doors at RBC that, that doesn't necessarily have context as it applies to Canada? When they're coming in without, uh, you know, say, Canadian experience per se, I think the biggest thing is to just step back. This is a human being in front of us, and the experience is very relatable, whether it was in Canada or whether it was elsewhere. So James is a very funny guy. James is a very engaging guy, and I found out he is extremely connected. And those are all things, those are transferable skills that it doesn't matter if he was in the UK or he's in New Brunswick. 
those are transferable skills. And I think as an organization, but also as a society, we're getting much better at recognizing those transferable skills that people bring to us. Um, so, you know, if you were a doctor or you were an accountant or you were a comedian in another country and you come over here, James was no less funny uh, when he came to Canada. We just need to take the time to, to get to know him on a personal level. You know, if he has an idea, which he did, he had an idea for a magazine, he had an idea for lots of things. We are there at the very beginning with them. Our role is to be a trusted strategic advisor. Um, we're not just there to deliver a product. Uh, we are there actually to be with them step by step. This type of emotional intelligence, empathy, listening, transferable skills is very different than the old days, which is really looking at balance sheets. Do you think that that's going to call for a different type of banker going forward? Because it's much more about the gig economy and much more about uh, capability versus necessarily resume. You know, what we're hiring on now and what we really want to build in our folks, some examples would be uh, you know, communication, curiosity, uh, critical thinking, um, client centricity, really understanding our clients. So we can teach you the hard skills um, of reading a financial statement, uh, you know, those types of things. I can teach that to you. Your ability to communicate with a client, to be curious. Uh, you know, we define critical thinking as how do you take um, the information that's given to us from a client and turn that into an idea that you can then turn into practical advice. Greg Sloan, it's uh, a pleasure having you on Chatter That Matters and I hope I can uh, knock on your door again because you have such uh, positive energy, which is what Chatter That Matters is all about, positivity and possibility. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.